Well, today I decided again to not start uh, our regular teaching series again. We're going to be going through the book of Romans together. But instead, I wanted to respond to some things that I felt God speaking to us about as a church. Uh, last week, as I was speaking, uh, I made reference to a man named Barnabas in the New Testament who was known for his generosity and his encouragement, such that he, in response to God's grace on his life, he sold a field that he owned and the money he took and gave away, um, which was used as proceeds for the poor and for the establishing of the church there. And as I said it, I thought, I want to talk more about that. That sounds, oh, I'm trying to get dressed here. Uh, just, here we go, just that. That's as far as it's going to go, the getting dressed process. You'll be pleased to know. Um, as I said that, I felt it was significant for us. I thought, I want us to spend some time looking at the theme of generosity and God's grace together, and I want us to revisit something of how the early church was, came into existence, how the first church was born. Now, our, I looked last week at our story, how we as a community of people were established and how we believe God's led us this far, but I want to look at the early church, the first Christian community, and see how was that brought into existence. The way a baby is born there are lots of theories about how that has implications for the baby's life and for their personality, uh, whether it's a fast birth or a slow birth or whether was, there were complications or whether a, a C-section was needed. The, as a result of those things, the child will be independent or the child will be clingy or the child will be lacking in confidence. Well, how the church was born really does affect who and what it is and who and what we're supposed to be as Christians as well. And Jesus spoke a lot about wealth. In fact, he spoke more about money than about lots of other things that are really important. Typically, as a church, we don't talk very much about money. And the reason we don't is, well, I don't know. Why don't we talk much about money? Why don't I preach much about money? Why don't I feel comfortable talking about a subject that Jesus spoke so much about? Well, I know why I don't. Fear. Because I don't want to offend people. I don't want to annoy people. But I've come to the conclusion that that's the wrong way to behave in the way that I decide and consider what I think God's leading me to speak about and what I think is important. And so I'll be happy to put my hand into the viper's nest for us and talk about money. At the very least, I know that I need to hear it, and maybe you do too. But I'll be honest. I think a major reason of why I'm speaking about this subject today is because of our financial situation as a church, which if you remember, if you're at the members night a few weeks ago, you know things are a little challenging for us at the moment. It's not the only reason I'm speaking about it, but I want to be upfront and acknowledge that is a reason that's motivated me to focus on this topic. And so I say at the beginning, at the front end, if you're a Christian and you're not currently giving your money as an act of worship to God in some local church, whether this one or the church that you're a part of, I want to challenge you to start doing so. If you're a member of this church here and uh, you're not giving financially to God as an act of worship here, I, I want to challenge you to start giving today. If you are a member and you do give, but you give on an ad hoc basis, I want to challenge you today to start giving regularly. And if you give regularly, I want to challenge you to start giving generously and sacrificially. And the reason I talk about this is because I, I believe fundamentally that how you handle your money is much more important for you to get right 
than it is for us as a church to have our needs met. Our handling of our money is arguably the clearest indicator that we have of exactly what it is that we, in fact, worship or live for. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money and possessions are, to use the Bible's language, they're an idol. They're an idol. And an idol is anything that we look to to give us security or salvation and peace, anything other than God to bring us those things. In the Bible, idols cause God's people a lot of problems, a huge amount of problems. Idols ultimately shrink and shrivel our lives never quite delivering the fullness and the satisfaction that they promise us. And the reason idols have a power over us is because deep down, every one of us believes that God cannot be trusted, that we need to turn to creative things to bring us salvation, peace, security, instead of our creator. I'm probably running ahead to my conclusion. So, um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 4 and considering the early church there. So, here we go. Acts 4, verses 32 to 37. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Now what I noticed this week for the first time was something that's really quite obvious, but it wasn't something that I'd seen in this Bible bit until this week. It wasn't just Barnabas who sold property. It says, as many as were landowners, as many as were, the implication being there were others who did this, and quite a few of it by the sounds of it. The church was born in such a way that everyone was swept up in amazing acts of sacrificial generosity. And I use that phrase, sacrificial generosity, deliberately. Generosity in the Christian life, isn't concerned with the amount that a person gives, but with the value to them of what they give. Jesus' enacted parable helps us with this. There's an occasion where he witnessed two people putting their offerings into the temple offering. He saw a very wealthy man putting a very large sum of money in the temple offering. And he saw a very poor woman putting a very small amount into the temple offering. And he said to his followers, she gave far more than he did. Because he gave a lot, but he gave it out of his wealth. She gave everything that she had. Generosity that's sacrificially. Generosity that, what's the phrase? It's important for us to consider not just giving, but sacrificial giving. It's important that the word sacrificial comes before the word generosity. To describe how I think the early Christians lived and breathed and how I suppose and believe we as Christians are meant to live and behave as well. Generosity that's sacrificial is generosity that hurts. In fact, an observation from my own life is the more that it hurts to give, the better it is for me. 
Because anything that pushes me onto trusting God more is good. And killing idols is the fastest way to do that. And wealth and money and income is our predominant idol, even in an affluent society like this. But let's look at this together. How was this kind of radical generosity, sacrificial generosity, how was it possible? Because, let's not forget, these people in the Bible times, all of them to a person, were dirt poor by our standards. In fact, economists tell us that the poorest parts of the planet today enjoy a better standard of living than the richest parts of the world did in Jesus' day. That makes what they did even more amazing. See, although they were poor, Although they had almost zero social security and protection, nevertheless, they gave abundantly. They gave sacrificially. They gave painfully. It hurt them. It changed their possibilities and potentials as a, as a community. This is radical and reckless generosity. And it's the sort of generosity that very few of us in the room know anything about. Although some of you do, and you have a lot to teach us. By and large, the sorts of generosity that we're most used to in our society are the kind of generosity that is often motivated by guilt, as in we feel pressured to give, or it's the kind of generosity that's that's basically born out of a spontaneous response of compassion based on a need that we come across. And so we might watch something, we might feel pressured, we're motivated as a result of the pressure we give. The pressure's relieved. Phew. But we don't give often in a way that stops us know, having a holiday or going for a coffee with friends. We don't give sacrificially. But that's the sort of thing that happened here. So what made it happen? What made it possible for them? Did the church announce a special gift day? Special sell your property and give the proceeds away day or a buy a chair and one to share day? Did they come up with a pie chart of the money they needed as a community to pay for their pastor or to hire the building they met in or to provide for the needs? No, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't appear so. In fact, I think what happened here and what needs to happen in our lives for the sort of radical sacrifice and generosity to occur comes from a clue that's found in verse 33. Referencing the the common ownership of possessions in the church and the power of the apostles in their preaching of the resurrection, it says simply this. It says, great grace was upon them all. All of them. All. To a person. Not just the apostles or the leaders or the pastors. Every single one of them, great grace, the Bible says, was upon them. And grace is another word for the word gift. It refers to the gift-giving nature of God. It refers to God's incredible generosity and kindness towards us. A theme that exists throughout the story of the Bible. We are those who are tight-fisted and self-protective with our resources. We're motivated by fear and greed a lot of the time. God in the Bible, we see, is, is motivated differently. God is lavish with his gifts. And his goodness. God gives away. God is full of grace, abundantly, overflowingly. This verse says, great grace was upon them. The amazing generosity of God was upon them. It affected them. It moved them. It propelled them 
to action in remarkable ways. I often think of the story that uh, many of us were told at preschool. You know the one, the, the day, one day the, the wind and the sun are having a discussion about who can get the hiker beneath them to remove his jacket. And the wind blows and the man grabs his jacket tighter. The sun shines and he takes his jacket off almost voluntarily and instantly. God's generosity towards us, his grace, is meant to cause us to be able to let go, to behave differently. God's grace opens us up like a flower to live more loving, more generous, more open-hearted and handed lives. Something that all of us, no doubt, would want. If I was to ask you, to a man, we'd all say, yes, I like the idea. I want to be a generous person. Well, why aren't we? Well, Paul writes in Romans 2 that the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Repentance means literally to just to turn around. His kindness, his grace towards us, causes us to turn around, to turn toward him. As a parent or as a spouse, or even just as a friend, you know this. You know that if you want to motivate a loved one to change, generosity and kindness does it far more effectively than nagging. God's kindness to us is so remarkable that it causes us to do a complete 180 with our lives, to give up everything that we held on to before. That's what it means to become a Christian. We heard this phrase last week, people turned to the Lord Becoming a Christian in Jesus' day or in the Apostles' day, it wasn't becoming a Christian, ticking a box on a census form, going to church. It was turning to the Lord. Everything does a 180. I was living for this, for myself, and now I've turned towards Him. Give up, give up everything that I held dear before. My attitudes towards my sex life or my spending life or what I'm living for or the purpose of my life, it, all of it turns towards Him. And I lay it at His feet. That's what God's grace and generosity did in the church here, on all of them, en masse. It wasn't individuals having a, a private experience with God. All of them knew what it was to have great grace upon them. And others, as a result, the whole church community, it seems, were affected and swept up. And there were far-reaching implications of the generosity of this early church. Because... What's fascinating to me, if you know the, the history of the Bible, or the, what happens after this in the story, is that years later, the people in Jerusalem, people like some of them who were part of this generous giving, the people in Jerusalem experience a famine. In other words, those who still had land in the country, their crops failed. They had nothing left. But rather than this being a crisis for the church... Well, actually, you, you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, notably, and he's, he's visiting them on his way to Jerusalem, bringing a collection of offering and goods and wealth from the churches to the Christians in Jerusalem who are fallen under hard times. So what's happened here is that in Acts 4, the early church is birthed with radical acts of generosity. People sell their field, they give it to the poor. As many as had need, had their needs met. As a result of that generosity, churches get planted one result of that is that churches get planted. People go out from Jerusalem mo motivated by the grace of God to establish churches around the region. Years later, famine hits, but there are churches who are birthed out of this generous nature. And they give to help the brothers and sisters, the Christians in time of crisis in Jerusalem. That's how God's economy and kingdom works. 
We give, and as we give, we become dependent on God. But as we give, it empowers and releases others to be the ones who meet our needs. Not always looking to ourselves to meet our needs. It's a little bit like this. Um, Every week or so, or whenever I can, I play squash with one particular friend of mine over in Eastbourne. Um, I win most of the time. Um, You didn't ask, I just thought I'd tell you. Um, He's good at squash. Um, We have a lot of fun playing squash. He sweats a lot. Um, And every time after we finish playing, the next people go on the court after us, and they almost always comment because it looks like someone's had a shower on the court because he sweats so much. It's like water's flying off him onto the floor, and there's just puddles and droplets. And so I'm trying to chase the squash ball, um, which, you know, I always feel like squash is a very gladiatorial epic game until you say the word out loud, I play squash, and then instantly I feel like a middle-class fat businessman. Um, but it's a very epic gladiatorial game, squash, charging around the court in pursuit of this tiny black ball. Um, so I'm chasing around the court, trying to get the ball, trying to dodge him, trying to dodge the sweat that's flying off him. And every so often I misjudge my path to the ball and I have to brush past him. And as I brush past him, his sweat just drips off him and like compresses onto me. And I'm suddenly now just caked in his sweat. Christian generosity is like that. You spend enough time in a Christian community that's generous like that. God's activity in the church, it it sticks to you. It, it's contagious. It affects you. You end up f- noticing, I'm more peaceful because I'm around these people. I'm more generous. I'm more prayerful. I'm more centered. Maybe, maybe that's a little bit too gross for us to kind of aspire to. Like, I want that. I want Jesus' sweat. No. Here's a different image. You see, whilst there is a grace of God that is like a, the the warm sun on our back. The grace that's upon the church here seems more forceful than that, stronger than that. It says the grace of God was upon them. Like the way a predator might pounce on something and devour it. God's generosity and kindness can devour you. And the image I have in my mind, is the image of a tsunami. It starts low down, far out at sea. It builds and it builds and it builds. God's grace is like that. It might start with a shudder, a vibration that sends a tremor through your life. Maybe you're awoken to the kindnesses all around you. Maybe you feel... Some of your entitlement starts to sour as you become grateful. Maybe you feel an amazing sense of gratitude at life's blessings. But it's a strange feeling. And since you don't quite know who to direct your gratitude at, you sit, you feel grateful. But gratitude that isn't expressed remains unfulfilled. And so we're grateful for, but we're not sure who we're grateful to. And that's what happens is the tremor of God's grace becomes a wave. It's still gentle, but it's unnerving because it's strong and it's forceful. You might feel taken along with the wave. The force of God's goodness might begin to surface in your life and carry you along. 
You might find yourself attending church or asking a Christian friend about God. You look up things on the internet about Christianity. Perhaps you even go on an alpha course to learn more. You're aware of a force, a force of goodness at work in your life. It feels right to go with it. But there's also an amount of, there's, a, there's some amount of nervousness and trepidation because the thing that moves you feels strong. Friends start to warn you not to get carried away or radicalized, which is something that you hear, but you, as you hear it, you harbor fears that the force that's driving you might want to do just that, carry you away. And the wave builds, and its strength mounts. You're no longer the same as you were when the first shock wave of God's grace hits you. You feel somehow lighter and freer. You're on a journey, you say, but where's it leading? And then the wave has built so much that it's tra- and it's traveling so fast that unexpectedly it comes eventually into contact with the parts of your life you never thought it would, you never thought it would affect. I mean, you were just dabbling in religion. Now the full force of God's generosity towards you, his kindness, his overwhelming, unrelenting, unconditional love hits you. Bam! Your life starts to spin out of control. Strongholds shudder. Deep-rooted ways of behaving and thinking are obliterated. And on it goes and on and on and on throughout your life until along with it you find yourself desiring. Desiring? I never thought I would, thought, I never thought I would have desired to do it. But you desire to give things away, to sell your possessions, to behave in a way that the world would think you mad for doing. And it's not because anyone's told you to. It's because you want to. When a tsunami wave comes into contact with solid objects, cars and houses, the force of the wave can be so strong that it literally picks them up and carries them along with it. Nothing can stand against the force of the water. Everything gets taken along with it. And don't get me wrong. Heavy objects require some element of grit and determination to move. We're dealing with idols in our lives, after all. Things that have had a firm grip on us, on how we behave. For so long, we've been conditioned to believe that God can't be trusted. We've been conditioned to behave in a way that says sacrifice and generosity is is irresponsible. I can still remember very vividly the first time I... uh, a larger sum of money into a, an, an offering at something that I'd ever done before. First time I gave some money away, it hurt. I wrestled with fear. I wrestled with doubt and suspicion for a long time. But the grace and the goodness of God eventually shifted the stuckness of the boulder of worldly wealth, and I gave The thing about boulders is they're so heavy and so strong that they get stuck again wherever they land. And so I have to keep giving. I have to keep giving joyfully, willingly. But I also have to give deliberately when I don't want to. I have to keep giving in order to cause these boulders, these lies, this self-reliance. I have to keep giving to stop it from sticking. And the chances are good that The more money you have, the harder it is to give sacrificially. I know as I speak, it's likely that those of us in the room with the the tenderest consciences will feel the most challenged. 
but you're probably not the ones who need to hear it the most. In the passage in Acts, everyone shared their possessions with one another, but they single out the generosity of the wealthy. They single out those who had property and fields because the wealthy are often the last ones to give sacrificially in a way that hurts. They can give large sums of money, but can they give sacrificially? Jesus said, it is impossible for the rich to inherit the kingdom of God. And so Luke includes the story here in Acts almost to make the point, just the same point that Jesus does. But things that are impossible with man are possible with God. The great grace of God upon them moved them, carried them, freed them from the idols of our age. There were no laws or rules laid down in the church that told them to give, no campaigns, no pressure from the church to get their money. There was simply the lavish grace of God and the generosity of God in Christ. Christ, who though he was strong, became weak. Though he was rich, became poor for our sake, for your sake, for my sake. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, he writes, He says, the love of Christ controls us. So forcefully did he know the significance and the weight of God's love in his life. So much did he understand about the implications of Jesus' resurrection from the dead that he felt controlled by it. It dictated everything about his life. Christians are meant to be those who have felt the force of the grace of God. And rather than resist it, we've learned to be those who get swept along with it and who discover along the way that by leaning into it through radical acts of generosity and sacrifice, it's much more enjoyable than to not. It's how we surf the wave of the tsunami of God's kindness to us. As a result of the grace upon them, it says just a few verses later in Acts 5, It says, the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the church. Multitudes of men and women, it says, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them, and they were healed. The great grace, the lavish, abundant generosity and kindness of God in Christ affected everyone who came into contact with the church. Such is the force and the draw of God's grace and kindness to us. That's why we're going to respond together this morning, not by taking up an offering or making a plea for money. We're going to respond by breaking bread and having communion. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, sat down with his disciples and he broke bread. And he said, this bread is a symbol of my body broken for you, that you might have forgiveness. And he took some wine And wine in the Bible is a symbol of celebration and joy. It's a symbol of the life to come, the the world to come, where all disease and death and sickness and sadness will be obliterated, and in its place there'll be feasting and celebration. Wine is a symbol of that. And Jesus took a cup of wine and said, this wine is like the blood of of the new covenant, the promise I'm making with you. In other words, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, He said, I want you to do something in memory of me that helps you remember not just who I am and what I did, but what I'm going to do in the future. And it's it's an act of incredible generosity and grace. He 
He gives his body. He gives his blood. And he promises that one day you and I will be able to sit with him in celebration in a new world, in the new creation that he's making. So Christians ever since have taken bread and wine as a memorial of that and as a pointer to the future that Jesus is building for us. And as we do it, we remember the amazing, lavish generosity and grace of God in Christ who didn't hold back even his most precious thing. He gave us himself. He gave us his son so that whoever you are, whatever your idols, whatever is trapping you, his grace comes to free you from the idols of your life that would stop you from knowing God's goodness and kindness in your life.